All right, well, if you guys have a Bible, open it up to John chapter 1. Uh, we're going to kind of be all over the place again this morning, but John chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to read from verses 12 and 13. Just a reminder, if you uh, had forgotten, which I'm sure you haven't, this is the last Sunday before spring break. So uh, next week, we will not have college class. We're assuming you guys will be at home. I know, I am sad too. Uh, in two weeks, we will, but only at six o'clock. So no 11 o'clock and six o'clock as you come in from out of town that day, uh, feel free to join us at six. And then we'll start back up on, I think it's the 28th, maybe the last weekend in March. Uh, we will start up at 11 and six again once you guys are back. So we look forward to seeing you all then. All right, John chapter one, starting in verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Would y'all pray with me? God, we're grateful for your word, and we do acknowledge uh, there's nobody greater, nobody higher, nobody more able. Uh, We acknowledge that our lives are from you. We did not create ourselves. We have not saved ourselves. Father, we acknowledge that it is all of you that we have life. Lord, give us wisdom as we study your word this morning to understand what it has to say. Pray that we would uh, have submissive, obedient hearts to both believe and obey your word as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, One of the things my wife and I discovered about one another after we got married is that we have different tastes in food. Uh, I am a big fan of Mexican food. Any uh, Mexican food aficionados? Okay. Uh, I could eat it every day for every meal almost and probably not feel sick or not get tired of it. Uh, My wife, on the other hand, uh, does get tired of it. It's interesting. She's actually half uh, Mexican by birth and she was born in San Antonio, but somewhere in the gene transfer process, she missed the Mexican food gene. And so uh, she doesn't like it as much as I do. She's much more into hamburgers or sandwiches and things along those lines. So we occasionally have some sort of uh, friendly dialogue about where we're going to eat. Now, I began to think this week, uh, what would happen if I decided I'm going to make a concerted effort to get her to go to more of the restaurants that I want to go to, to more Mexican food places? The way I see it, I've got two ways I can approach this subject. One, I can uh, try to force her to do it. All right, I could open up my Bible to Ephesians 5, right? And I could say, well, sweetie, it says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, and so on. We're going to Papa Perez, right? And then close it. Now, I could try that tactic. I could put her in the car physically and drive her there. I could try to make her do what I want her to do. Now, the problem is it probably would not have the impact that I would hope. She would go, but her heart wouldn't be in it. Uh, My other option is I could attempt to persuade. I could attempt to woo her, right? I could encourage her uh, that, sweetie, if you will eat at my restaurant tonight, then I will eat at, uh, you know, breads, etc., whatever, every day for the next week, and I will eat at your restaurant. I can make a bargain with her. I could convince her that going to this place somehow will make her happy. I could uh, perhaps take a picture of the restaurant and show her how everybody looks happy and full and fed when they're there. I could tell her that the cast of Pride and Prejudice eats there, and maybe if we go there, we'll see it right. I could try to persuade her, 
by, by telling her how great it's going to be. Those are the options I see before me. Either I try to force her or I try to persuade her. I don't really see, in my mind, a middle option, at least not one that's available to me. I can't simultaneously do both. And because I think as human beings, we really only have these uh, two major options for how to get somebody to do something. I think we often think of God the same way. And so we struggle with how is it that God can be in control of my life? How can he be in control of the world and yet still somehow allow people to choose? And often what's happened in the history of Christian thought is that men and women have said, well, that's impossible. Those two concepts of God being in control and man having some degree of will are mutually exclusive, right? And never the twain shall meet. And so what's happened is in the history of Christian thought, people have gone to one extreme or to the other. They've either said, well, uh, God is so sovereign that man has no will. God completely overrides your will. Or they've gone all the way to the other extreme and they've said, uh, no, man's will is what determines the process of salvation. And a few people have tried to meet somewhere in the middle as well. And so really when you look at the history of Christian thought, this is a huge debate. Maybe you've wondered those sorts of questions. If God is totally in charge, why should I pray? If God is totally in charge, why should I share the gospel? And on the other hand, if God is not totally in charge, then how do I know that my salvation is secure? How do I know that it's not by works that I'm saved? How do I know that God won't allow me to pull myself away from his grasp somehow? So we've got to find a way to either balance or figure out how do these two extremes mesh. And as you look throughout history, uh, this has been an ongoing debate. Perhaps the first time it came up in the history of the church would have been in about the fourth century. There were these two guys, one was named Augustine, the other was named Pelagius. All right, Augustine was a, a giant of a theologian. It's hard to uh, underestimate the impact that he's had on Christian thought. And Augustine said, a mankind is totally unable to respond to God. He calls that, you call that depravity. Mankind is unable to do what God wants apart from the intervention of the Holy Spirit to transform us and to give us grace, and to give us eternal life. On the other side, you have this guy Pelagius who said, no, mankind has the ability, the capacity to do God's will. He's got the natural ability to do it. And these two guys fought it out. And ultimately what happened was Council of Ephesus in 431, and then again in 529, Council of Orange, they condemned Pelagius. And they said, no, Augustine is right. So if you call a theologian a Pelagian today, those are fighting words, right? You might get a punch in the tummy or something like that if you call somebody a Pelagian. It's the theological equivalent of saying Benedict Arnold or something along those lines, right? Because he was condemned by the church. But even as you get down past the Protestant Reformation, you have a debate between a group that would call themselves Calvinists, followers of John Calvin, and a group that would call themselves Arminians. Uh, That's not Armenian, the country, but Arminians, the follower of a theologian named Jacob Arminius, a 16th century theologian. And on one side, on the Calvinist side, you have this idea of sovereignty. On the other side, on the Arminian side, you have this idea of will. And the two factions have been perhaps at theological war for years. How do you deal with this? And the challenge is to try to find some sort of balance. Think about it this way. Gentlemen, if you decided to ask a girl out this week and she says to you she will go and you go on a date and you like her, Over the course of the next week or two, you want to try to balance, how do I let her know that I'm interested without conveying that I'm a freak, right? You've got to balance, right? So you don't necessarily go for two weeks and not call. If you see her on campus, you don't turn around and walk the other way, 
or try to sit opposite, but you don't necessarily send her a cake with her face on it and I love you right across the front of it after the first date, right? You want to balance your pursuit of her and your ability to, hey, be cool, right? You got to find that balance. That's hard to do. When we look at the scripture, what we're trying to do is what is the balance between God's sovereignty and the will of man? How do those things fit in? Now, as I talk about this, I'm aware that some of you may have a favorite theologian. You may have a favorite scripture. You may have a favorite writer, and you have a system that you hold to. And so I'm probably going to anger some of you, frustrate some of you, confuse some of you. Some of you may not even care, and you're saying, why does this matter? All right, let me encourage you, for first of all, to say this. The reason it matters is because it affects some vital issues of our walk with the Lord. Again, why do I pray? Why do I share the gospel? Are those things valuable? Uh, is my salvation secure? Can I trust God's promises, or do the things that I do affect God's promises? All right, on the other hand, it may be that you feel very strongly and passionately about this. What I'm going to encourage you to do, I am not going to answer every question. I'm not going to deeply be able to plumb the mysteries of God in the next 25 minutes, all right? I'm not going to solve it or wrap it up into a neat little package. What I want to try to do is just lay out what does the Bible say? I'm going to give us a couple of options and then perhaps try to find a biblical balance. What I would challenge you, if you come up and you want to discuss it with me, great, but please discuss it from the Word of God. All right, whether you hold to the theology of John Calvin or John Wesley or John Piper or Jonathan Edwards or John Mayer, I don't really care, all right? But what I want to do is I want to discuss it from the Word of God. Uh, Martin Luther, when he was standing at the Diet of Worms, when he was being uh, condemned for his thought about grace, he says this, unless I am convinced by the testimonies of the Holy Scriptures or evident reason, for I believe neither in the Pope nor councils alone, since it has been established that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures adduced by me, and my conscience has been taken captive by the Word of God. And I am neither able nor willing to recant, since it is neither safe nor right to act against conscience. God help me. Amen. Hopefully that's the attitude we'll take to the scripture this morning. We're going to talk from reason, but we're going to talk from the word of God. Right? Now, fortunately, I'm not in the position of Luther where you're going to physically kill me if you think I'm wrong. But I would challenge you to consider these issues from the word of God primarily, regardless of who your favorite writer or theologian is. All right, so let me just lay out some options. All right, our first option is this. I can strongly emphasize free will. I can strongly say what really is important is that I maintain the integrity of man's will. All right, this really appeals perhaps to an American mindset in particular. A a most famous poem that you guys have seen uh, is the poem Invictus that was written back in the 1800s. Great poem, but it ends with this line, what? I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. I'm in charge of my destiny. Some of you may have seen a movie that came out a few years ago called uh, The Pursuit of Happiness with a Y. Happiness with a Y by Will uh, Will Smith was the main actor in it. And what's the basic storyline of the movie? Well, you've got a guy that he's poor and he's desperate and through sheer hard work and being a genius, but they don't really deal on that, but sheer hard work. He manages to work his way into a stockbroker firm, and he works his way up to the top. That's the American dream, and now he's a millionaire of millionaires, right? That is what we want to believe, is that if I work hard enough, I can get my way up to the top. And so we sometimes, I think, bring that into our theology, and we want to strongly emphasize, if I work hard enough, God has got to respect that. God has got to give me something. This is what we would call, in the history of Christian thought, uh, Arminian or Wesleyan theology, 
Right? And it's on one side of the spectrum, on the side of the spectrum of free will. And I'm just going to give you some key points of what we would call Arminian. Again, not Arminian, that's a country. Arminian is a theologian. All right? We're going to talk about what are some of the key points of his theology. All right, the first thing is this. Uh, Arminius said, everybody, and Wesley following him, John Wesley said, everybody has this little spark of good within them. Wesley called it... Uh, and Arminius both called it prevenient grace. That is that God gives, everybody is born certainly depraved, they would argue, unable to be saved. But God gives to everybody a little taste of his grace. And that taste of his grace is necessary and sufficient to redeem our will, to make us able to do now what God wants us to do and able to choose God. All right, so then when we talk about God's election, God's choice of certain people, God chooses people not based upon his own counsel and not unconditionally, but on a prior knowledge of what they will do. So God looks ahead and he says, this person will choose me, so I choose them. That was the way that Arminius and then Wesley following chose to deal with this issue of free will. They would say passages that talk about election are really talking about God choosing on the basis of what, I, what he knows I will do. They would use a passage like Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So they would say, well, God knew. That's what they would say foreknew means. Right now, on the other side, perhaps another theologian might say, as you look at other passages, this word foreknew really is more active. It has the idea of God choosing. Right, but to an Arminian theologian, they would say, all right, God knew what we were going to do, and so he elected us on that basis. Right? Because of that, then, I have the possibility of losing my salvation. If I am saved, but then I sin, or I disobey, or I recant, or I deny God, I can lose my salvation in Arminian theology. Because I'm the one that chose God in the first place, if I then don't choose him anymore, God removes his hand and I lose my salvation. So this is the, this is the option that would strongly emphasize uh, free will. They would look at a passage like Hebrews 10, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. They would look at that passage and say, see, it's clear that you can lose your salvation. Now again, others would say, we need to look at the context. What does this passage mean? Right. But this is how it would be interpreted from an Arminian standpoint. Now, just like any system of theology, there are some problems. Right. When we go to one extreme or the other, I think there are always going to be problems. One problem here is this. I think the Arminian view underemphasizes the depravity of man. It doesn't as clearly state as it could how bad we really are. When you look at passages like Romans 3 and Ephesians 2, it's clear that really the scripture seems to say, regardless of what good you may do at any given moment, you are irretrievably born bad. That's why Romans 3 says there's nobody righteous. There's nobody, no, not even one, right? Uh, their mouths pour forth lies and deceit and death. The poison of asps is on their tongues. Ephesians 2 puts it this way. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of us are born completely unable to follow God. If there's one thing that the scripture is clear on, it's that we are sinful. We are utterly depraved, utterly unable 
to do anything to contribute to our salvation. It's interesting, uh, one theologian has mentioned, perhaps with tongue-in-cheek, that uh, depravity is one of these doctrines that uh, many uh, have criticized in the Christian faith, and yet it's one of the few doctrines that is scientifically, experimentally observable. Right? I can look around the world and I can see, no, in general, people don't choose good. People choose evil. So I think this Arminian uh, theology underemphasizes the concept of depravity. Keep going here. I think secondly, it overemphasizes the role of man. Scripture is clear that I don't choose God, but instead God chooses me. John 1.12, the passage I read just here at the beginning. uh, They were born, what, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Apart from some redeeming act by the Spirit of God, I'm unable to be saved. There's not enough of a spark of good in me to choose God. And then thirdly, uh, eternal, this concept of eternal security, I think, is scripturally clear. John 10, 28 to 29 is one of just many passages that indicate that those that God has saved, those that God has chosen, can never be lost. Okay? John 10, 28 is a good one. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I would include myself in no one. I would include you in no one. I would include uh, the demons, the angels, the principalities, everybody. Romans 8, Ephesians 1. There's numerous other passages that we could go to. So let's say we we say, all right, we're not going to strongly emphasize free will then because it has some problems. What we can do is we can swing all the way over here to the other spectrum then. And option two is I say I'm going to strongly emphasize God's sovereignty. And I'm going to say, even though it appears that mankind has some sort of free will, he really doesn't. God controls everything. And there is no opportunity for man to respond in any sense to God. I don't know how many of you uh, remember your driver's ed classes. And I don't know how many of you had classes that were like mine. But back when I took driver's ed, uh, they put us in a simulator. And uh, what we would do is we would literally get into like a van and we would sit down in chairs and rows in this van and you'd have a steering wheel that was fake and you'd have a fake pedal and in front of you would be a little video. And the video was taken as someone was driving down the street. So there were sensors in the wheel and sensors in the pedal and what you would do because they didn't yet trust you, I guess, with an actual vehicle is you would sit in the, in the car and uh, you, would, you would drive and react like you might react Uh, if this were an actual situation. So you'd be driving along and you'd see in the screen some guy would jump out of his car suddenly, right? So you'd have to turn this way. And then over here, there'd be a dog. So you'd have to turn this way. And and these were crazy videos. It was like, I've never seen this actual situation on the road. Puppies jumping out and people flying over here and, you know, lights suddenly turning red and, you know, all these sort of things. But the idea was before you get in a car, we're going to test how you actually can handle a vehicle. But what was interesting about it was nothing that I did with this wheel made any difference. It was a fake wheel. It was a fake pedal. If I suddenly in the middle of the road decided to slam on the brakes, nothing was going to happen unless it happened on the screen. All right, this to me is the concept of, of what we would call extreme Calvinism. Right, I would say, well, you appear to have a wheel, but really you've just got a little wheel here. Right, and you're just spinning it But God is in control to the extent that you have zero control. You have zero opportunity to respond. All right, let me just lay out some of the uh, tenets of uh, Calvinism. And again, I'm laying out what I would say is the more extreme versions of Calvinism. I would say, and I'll just tip my hand, I would probably identify more with the Calvinistic side with the Arminian. But there are elements here 
that I'm going to talk about that I think are troublesome scripturally. All right, Calvinist theology, first of all, would acknowledge this concept of depravity. Everybody is utterly depraved, like we read from Ephesians 2, unable to reach out to God apart from some intervention by the Spirit. All right, because of that, then they would say, okay, God elects not based on what he knows I will do, but simply unconditionally. God chooses some for eternal life. In the more extreme versions of Calvinism, they would say, God chooses some for eternal life. And interestingly, they would say, he chooses or creates others for damnation. In other words, God creates some for eternal life, and then he actively creates others that he plans to destroy. And they would go to Romans 9, for example. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Now, some in the Calvinist group would say, uh, actually, these words prepared are two different words in the Greek. One is more passive and the other is more active. So uh, what's really going on is that uh, many are all are actively running toward destruction. And yet God has uh, actively pulled some out of the fire. That's election. And he has passively allowed the rest to go to their destruction. All right. But there are some that would say, no, God has actively said, you go to heaven, you go to hell. So that you've got concepts of absolute unconditional election. All right, continuing in, in Calvinist theology, you would also have this concept of uh, what we would call limited atonement. Let me explain that. What they would say is, from the beginning of time, because God has chosen those whom he will save, whom he will redeem, that means that when Jesus came, Jesus only died for the elect. Jesus' death on the cross only covered those that God had already said ahead of time would go to heaven. All right, so they wouldn't call, go with what you'd call an unlimited atonement, but Jesus' death only pays for that. What that means, practically speaking, is if I am an extreme Calvinist, I cannot say to you this morning, Jesus died for you. Right? I cannot say, Jesus died for your sins. He might have, he might not have. He only died for those whom he will redeem. And then he irresistibly calls those that he has elected. Jesus died for the elect, and then he, John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, brings him. There's an irresistible element to it. You cannot resist the grace of God. So for the elect, when the gospel is preached, they have been inevitably called, inevitably brought into God's kingdom. They cannot resist it. For everybody else, they cannot accept it because God has determined from the beginning of time. So the, the seeming response of faith is really not a responsibility on our part at all. It is something that God makes you do. Right? God forces your hand. Right? And then they would say, okay, because of that, then they have the doctrine perseverance of the saints, which would then include this idea of eternal security. But also, if you are a believer, you will inevitably and progressively get better and better. Uh, you will not ultimately, you will not deny God. You will not live in sin uh, till the end of your life. You will not turn away from him. Why? Because God has inevitably called you, has inevitably chosen you, and you cannot resist his will. So the the upshot of this is this, if Jesus only died for the elect, and if the elect are those who will inevitably and progressively move towards salvation, what happens if I go through sin or struggle or suffering or challenge in my life and I begin to wonder, am I really saved? What do I look to? Can I look to the cross? 
No. Because I don't know if I'm elect. So what do I look to? Well, the, the traditional Calvinist answer has been, you look to what they call the reflex act. That is, I reflect upon my life, I reflect upon my works, and I ask, do my works reflect Jesus Christ? If they do, I'm saved. If they don't, I'm probably not. And so what happens is, I say, what determines my assurance is, how am I acting? Am I a good boy? Am I a bad boy? And so what I've found is, is the Arminian option and the Calvinist option, interestingly, at their extremes, both in in a very similar place. I look at my works to determine if I'm saved. few problems I see with the extreme Calvinists. First of all, unlimited atonement, I think, biblically, this concept that Jesus only died for some, seems, seems weak. The biblical support seems weak. First John 2, 2, he is the propitiation, that is the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Not only for those who believe, but also for the sins of the whole world. First Timothy 4.10 For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Right? Jesus is the Savior of all men, but in a special sense for those who believe in him. Biblically, it seems to me the best option is to say that the atonement covers the sins of everybody. Mine, yours, everybody. Some receive, some do not. Secondly, faith seems to be presented in the scripture as a responsibility. In some sense, we cannot exercise faith unless the spirit moves, unless the spirit draws. But in some sense, we are called to respond. So when I present the gospel, there are some who will respond and some who will not. And certainly it is dependent upon the spirit who draws. But it seems like there's a mystery, a tension here between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And what I love about the scripture and the mysteries of God is God lays these two side by side. And he says, yeah, God's in charge. And yeah, man is responsible to believe. Yeah. And then it doesn't answer how. The Bible never tells us how to resolve this tension. And I think the reason is because it is a mystery of God that we may never understand. Not even when we get to heaven because we're smaller. We will always be less intelligent. Let me give you guys a couple of verses that lay this out. First Peter chapter 2. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. All right, watch this. They stumble. Why? Because they were non-elect? No. Because they disobey the word. What? As they were destined to do. Well, which is it? Is it because they disobey? Is it because they were destined to disobey? Peter says, yeah, both. Don't try to figure it out. It'll take your brain spinning into a little spiral. Right? John 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. All right, so they believed, he gave them the right to become children of God. Why? Because they believed, because they received. Who were born, by the way, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Well, which is it? Because they believed or because God chose to birth them? Which one? John says both. He lays them side by side. We see these concepts constantly placed in tension throughout the scripture. It's called, the theological term is antimony. Right, it's two concepts that seem contradictory to you and me, but in the mind of God, they are not. And I think the danger is that we say, all right, I want to wrap it all up into a neat little package. So I'm going to go over here, or I'm going to go over here, and my mind can understand this, my mind can understand this. Where I really have a hard time is my mind can't understand this. And yet the scripture says, let the tension rest in the mysteries of God. A couple other quick issues 
with Calvinism, there are biblical examples of those who have failed to persevere and yet still seem to be Christians. Go read the whole book of 1 Corinthians and particularly chapter 3. You have men and women that it says they, they have been given this foundation and yet their works that they build on it are such that they're barely saved. It says, so is through fire. Everything they have burns up except God saves them because it is in Jesus Christ that we're saved, not because of what we've done. And then uh, lastly, praying, preaching, hearing genuinely seem to affect the faith of the hearers. Romans chapter 10 in particular, Paul says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? It's an interesting story about William Carey, the first missionary who went to India from England. When he went before his church board, and his church board was very strongly on the Calvinistic side, he went before his church board to convince them to allow him to go, to send him, to support him. There was an older minister who stood up and he said to him, young man, sit down. If God wishes to save the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. What's the idea? Don't bother to preach, son. Don't bother to pray, son. God's already determined. He'll do it without your help or mine. And biblically, what we see is that preaching, prayer, somehow in the economy of God, they matter. They matter. All right, so if we don't go all the way over here, we don't go all the way over here, how do we find some kind of a biblical balance? Just quickly, I'm going to give you some boundaries this morning before we wrap up. All right, some biblical boundaries. First of all, I think total depravity, this concept is absolutely biblical. Absolutely biblical. That apart from the intervention of the Spirit, I cannot accept Christ. I don't know exactly what that intervention looks like or how it happens, but somehow at some point, for those that God has chosen, the Spirit intervenes and gives us the opportunity, the ability to believe. Second right. Corinthians 4.4 4 says, in their case, that is, uh, unbelievers, in, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Apart from God's intervention, unbelievers are blinded. They cannot see the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection for sins on our behalf. That's one biblical boundary. A second one would be this, what I would call unconditional single election, which is what I mentioned earlier. God unconditionally chooses those whom he will save. But nowhere in the scripture do we see that God elects others. You don't see that word election used for those who go to hell. And again, I think as you look at Romans 9, what the best option is is that all are running away. Go to the context of all of Romans. Romans 3 says everybody is running headlong as fast as we can away from God. We create idols. We create all kinds of things to get away from him. And God in his mercy reaches down and he saves some. Why does he choose some and not others? That's in the mysteries of God. But I don't think biblically we can go so far as to say he pulls this one out of the fire and then he pushes this one in. Right? But instead, the idea is God in his justice and in his mercy saves some. And others justly receive condemnation because all of us have sinned. All of us are worthy of condemnation. Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect or chosen 
exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. In other words, in the economy of God, God has chosen men and women to save out of his mercy, out of his grace. So total depravity, unconditional election, and then the last two. One, the responsibility of faith. Scripture presents to men and women over and over again. Believe, believe. John 1, 12, as many as who believed, it's presented as a responsibility that we're unable to do apart from the Spirit, but in some way, the Spirit moves in us to allow us to believe. Right? And then lastly, disobedience seems possible, but tragic for those who know God. There are consequences, there are judgments, there are disciplines, but it's still possible as I look at the scripture, for men and women who genuinely know Jesus Christ to disobey him. And yet it results in tragedy. So here's where we want to find that biblical balance. Again, to stay on the tightrope and not go one side or the other side. You sit here and you go, okay, so again, why, why does this matter? Why do I care? What can I do with this? Let me give you a few thoughts. First of all, trust God's promises. If you are here and you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of sins and eternal life, I think Romans 8, 38 to 39 is a good place to go. It says nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. It seems to me so crystal clear in scripture that those whom God has redeemed, he will never drop. You can trust God's promises. It has nothing to do with what you do or have done or will do. God has redeemed you. God is the one that will carry you through to salvation. Secondly, you can take assurance from Christ's work knowing that Jesus Christ died for everybody. So when I'm struggling and I'm doubting my salvation, I can know with certainty that Jesus Christ died for me. And so I look for my assurance not to what I'm doing or not doing, but to the cross of Jesus Christ. And I say, Jesus Christ died for me. I've believed and placed my trust in Jesus Christ. Interestingly, this is where John Calvin himself pointed us. It was many of his later followers that would say, no, you need to look to what you do. But John Calvin himself would say, look to the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of the world. Then thirdly, worship the mysterious and mighty God. I don't understand it. And I may never, I probably never will. So I fall on my knees and I worship him. I say, God, in your greatness, you've created a plan that I don't get, but I'm blessed to be a part of. So I worship him. Right, I would challenge you, as you think about God, avoid the danger of going to one extreme or the other and allow the tension to rest as it stands in the scripture. It should make you feel a little bit weird, a little bit uncomfortable. I don't quite get it. That's because it's God. And allow that tension to stand and then worship him. Would you guys pray with me? We'll be done. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we want to understand it. Father, I pray that these concepts this morning would not just be heady theological concepts for us to beat each other in a debate. Father, instead, they would transform our minds and our hearts that we would worship you, that we would acknowledge your sovereignty and control, but also rejoice that you've given us the opportunity to participate in your work. Let us be biblical men and women, men and women of the book, and not of the multiple thousands of books. Although we read them, Father, although we gain from them, I pray that we would first and foremost get into the word. Thank you for it.
Lord, we love you. And we pray be with us this week as we go about the different responsibilities we have. Let us do them to your glory, for your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all have a great week.